Life is filled with difficulties. I think we can probably all testify to that. How many had difficulties even this past week? Life is just difficult any way you look at it. Sometimes it's more difficult than others. Sometimes we get a break and we have a good week or a good day or a good month, but that difficulty always comes back. Life is a struggle. Life is even, we might say, filled with some level of tribulation or uh, um, uh, hardship, pressure, that kind of thing all the time. There's an old saying that you've probably heard uh, before, and that is, is that life is difficult and then you die. Not very encouraging, is it? It's kind of a kind of a downer of a saying. But there's some truth in that, especially if you're looking at it from a worldly point of view. Life is difficult, and then at the end of that difficult life, death is awaiting. It's awaiting all of us. But as we also know, uh, Paul, uh, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the Corinthians that the sting of death has been removed. And so it's not something we have to worry about and fret about and fear about like those who have no hope, lest we sorrow, he said, as those who have no hope. Wherever we look, though, today, it seems that there are there is heart-wrenching pain and struggle in this world. There's difficulties, there's, there's pain, there's sickness, and there are... Uh, sorrows. Our prayer list is growing here. It seems like that if we get to take someone off, it seems like two new names are added because there's sickness in the world and there's pain and there's hurt and there's people going through losses. More and more bad things are happening. We'll, we watch the news. We could probably watch the news today and find out some new bad thing that we had not heard about before. And yesterday was the same way. Tomorrow will be the same way. As technology has made some things in life and in this world easier, other things have become much more difficult during the same time period. Each advancement, technologically speaking, brings with it its own set of challenges, difficulties, ways to uh, sin even more, ways to... um, Uh, be distracted from God and what He is doing in this world and the realities uh, contained in His Word, His revealed Scripture, the Bible. All the problems, pain and difficulties of life are a form indeed of tribulation. Tribulation is just simply difficulty. In fact, if you want to look at a dictionary definition, Webster's defines tribulation as grievous troubles, severe trial or suffering. And as we know, there are different levels of this. I mean, we may uh, reserve the word tribulation for the really bad stuff that may happen in our life, a really rocky period or a substantially difficult period. And we might say the day-to-day difficulties are just merely trials or setbacks or uh, minor inconveniences. But nevertheless... This world is experiencing tribulation all day, every day. But there is also coming a period of time that Jesus taught about called the Great Tribulation, which will make all of the other tribulations of the past and of the present look small by comparison. In Matthew chapter 24, we have what is known as Christ's Great Eschatological Discourse, dealing with last things or end times. 
In verses 15 to 28, he teaches his disciples concerning the tribulation that will mark the end of the age. So when we see the pattern of the world, the general pattern of the world moving in this direction, we know that this world is coming to a close. And as we began looking at this chapter last week, we looked at verses, uh, well, basically from the beginning of the chapter all the way down through verse 14, talking about the signs of the times and the end of the age. The tribulation period is the next thing Jesus talks about specifically in verses 15 through 28. This period is marked by fear, pain, sorrow, and death. Although none of these things are new, they will occur in an unparalleled degree in this time in history. Jesus taught the masses. He taught, he taught the masses many things, I should say. But he only taught these things to his disciples. I believe he didn't teach it to the masses because it is difficult, it is confusing, and it takes a level of maturity. Imagine back when you were first saved, if somebody had said, well, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to read the book of Revelation and make sure you understand that, and then once you get that mastered, then we'll move on to other things. Or we want you to look at Matthew chapter 24, or uh, the same thing is recorded in Luke 13 and um, Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. Once you get that all mastered and you've got all these end time things figured out, then we'll move on to uh, stuff like the Beatitudes and the Golden Rule and John 3.16 and the 23rd Psalm. Now this is, this is heavy stuff. This is difficult stuff. And so Jesus didn't just get up and teach these things to the masses. He taught them really to kind of his inner circle of friends, the disciples. And he told them these things really to kind of complete the story of mankind's redemption. There was something missing. It was kind of too open-ended if he didn't kind of say there is going to be a capstone to history. All these things are going to wind down at some point. And what if we as the church, we got together week after week and we sang and we heard preaching and we fellowshiped with one another, we went home and we really didn't have anything to look forward to other than just more of the same until finally the day came for it to all be over for us. No, we have hope. We sing about hope. We preach about hope. We talk about hope one-on-one as we encourage one another because We as Christians, we as believers, have great reason for hope. In fact, Paul said, like I mentioned before, he said, we don't have to worry, we don't have to sorrow like the others in the world do who simply have no hope. But we have hope. We have great hope. He also wrote that hope does not disappoint in Romans 5, 5 because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And the Holy Spirit serves to encourage us every day of our lives. Even going through the tough times that we go through, the Holy Spirit is there as an encouragement, as an encourager. Don't you like to be around encouraging people? What a blessing it is. I don't like to be around people that always have something negative to say. I like someone who's going to say something encouraging. We all do. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not whispering negative things in our ear, but confirming to us and bringing to mind the scriptures that we already know, the truths from the Bible that we already know. 
and affirming them to us. Let's look now at Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28. And I ask that you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Jesus spoke here. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world, until this time, no one, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh will be saved. But for the elect's sake, the days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ, or there do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Let us pray. Lord, we pray this morning as we look at this scripture, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to understand it. Help it to be applied to our lives. Help us to be encouraged uh, that you do have a plan for this world. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're seated. Notice, first of all, the sign of great fear. There is great fear coming upon this world. There's already a lot of fear in the world. Fear is nothing new. But there is a greater fear than has ever been known before that is coming upon this world. Remember, Jesus is still speaking, though, in response to the disciples' question. They came to Him and they asked Him a question. In verse 3 it says, Now as He went on to the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, and this is after He has predicted the destruction of the temple, said, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then beginning in verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, and he still, this answer that he gives to the disciples is continuing even here in what we're looking at this morning. Therefore, we need to understand this passage in its immediate context. Undoubtedly, the passage looks ahead to the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, when uh, uh, the Roman Titus came in and destroyed and basically leveled the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. The parallel, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 21 and verse 20 says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. There's an old saying or an old truth uh, when it comes to Bible interpretation that you must first understand what a passage meant before you can understand what it means. And that means that you have to look back and you have to say, okay, 
Who originally said this and who were they saying this to? You've got to understand that. Jesus would not have spoken words to the disciples and he would not have privately thought, well, this is really going to fool them because it's going to be 2,000 years before anybody can understand what I'm saying. No, I don't believe that's true for a minute. I believe that this would have had an immediate meaning, an immediate context to the disciples to whom it was given. Now, does it have application for us 2,000 years later? Absolutely. But it first had a meaning. It first had a context for the people who originally received it. And so it's true all throughout the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, we must first understand, if we're going to properly interpret Scripture, we must first understand what it meant before we can understand what it means. In other words, we can't just start applying it until we understand what was actually being said to the original audience. And certainly it has um, lots of application to us, but we, we've got to keep that in mind always. Now, to the disciples or to any Jew, they would have been quite familiar with the Maccabean period in their history. In fact, as he was saying these things, it wasn't that long ago uh, in their history, just really a couple of hundred years, uh, that the Mac, what's known as the Maccabean Revolt had occurred. The apocryphal book of uh, 1 Maccabees records the sacrilegious history of what happened when Antiochus Epiphanes attempted to sacrifice a pig on the altar in Jerusalem in 167 B.C., fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel. Well, how do we look at this? You know, the, the apocryphal books are full of a lot of good history. They really give us a lot of insight into the intertestamental period and Jewish history through that time. That doesn't mean that they necessarily should be in our Bible and be considered inspired Scripture, but they certainly offer a lot of insight at the point of history in much the same way as, as Jewish historians like Josephus uh, uh, do through their writings. Now, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 spoke of what he calls the abomination of desolation, but it was first spoken of by Daniel the prophet. If you read the book of Daniel, you see, you see this occur uh, in three or four places. He talks about the abomination of desolation. And when these things come to pass, he says, indeed people uh, flee to the mountains and a whole lot of other atrocities that are predicted in verses 16 through 20. Uh, it doesn't look like a very pleasant place to be when these things are happening. You're on the housetop. Don't go back down into the house. Uh, people will be fleeing to, fleeing to the mountains. Uh, don't go back and get your clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies in those days, as there's another added level of difficulty, concern, and heartbreak. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Uh, this tribulation is great, such as not occurred since the beginning of time. That's how we know it's different. We're smart enough to know that we have suffered some level of tribulation. And there's always been tribulation in this world, and we can even... Uh, point to specific points in history. I know last Sunday night as we're going through our study of Revelation, I pointed out a lot about World War II and the things uh, that Hitler did to the Jews and how that many people just knew he had to be uh, uh, a, a biblical-type figure because they had never seen anything like this before. But what is happening here and what's being described is even greater, and people will look back and say, wow, the stuff that Hitler did, the stuff, uh, the, the Holocaust and all like that will be small 
compared to what's going to happen here in the final tribulation period. So a lot of these things are foreshadowings of the things to come. You can look back in history, you can see all kinds of evil dictators, oppressors, persecutions. All these things simply just point us to say, well, yeah, we certainly see how there can be something even greater than this happen. They're foreshadowings, they're precursors to the things that are to come. Understanding history, though, is the key to understanding the future. Why? What doesn't change? Well, number one, God doesn't change. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Number two, when has mankind's nature ever changed? Well, it never has. Actually, it did change once, but it was a long, long time ago. God made a man and a woman, and He put them in a garden. They were sinless. But then the day came that they sinned. And ever since then, mankind has had a sinful nature. You don't decide to, well, you know, I think I'm going to join everybody else and become a sinner. No, you're born that way. Bible tells us that even in our mother's womb, we were conceived in sin. We grew up in sin. We're sinners by nature. That's why we have to have the intervention of a Savior if there's any hope of salvation for any of us. But thankfully, God did intervene, and by grace we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God foreordained that we should walk in Him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10. Indeed, Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of Antichrist but was not the Antichrist. And there's a big difference there. John, in 1 John, talks about how many Antichrists, with a lowercase a, have been in this world. Maybe Hitler was one of those. Maybe Saddam Hussein was one of those. Maybe Idi Amin, maybe some other, Genghis Khan, some other great conqueror. Some evil dictator. Some, even a mass murderer of some sort, was a type of Antichrist. But it's clear that there is the Antichrist that is coming into this world. All of these others are a foreshadowing. They're a warning to everyone to get ready. This is a taste of what's coming. This is just a hint of what's ultimately coming. In that sense, it's really not going to come out of the blue as much as some people think that it might. It only will surprise someone who's not been paying attention. Those who have been paying attention, reading scriptures and, and studying history won't be that surprised by these things. They'll seem, well, yeah, that's just about right. That's just about right. And there'll be a lot of parallels that many would not have predicted. What's going to happen in the future is a whole lot like what's happened in the past, only to a greater degree. Passages like Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, Daniel 11, 30 and 31, and Daniel 12, 11, offer a lot of insight into these things. Daniel 12, 11 specifically says, And from the time that the daily sacrifices is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. This translates into basically three and a half years. 
half of the tribulation period. Clearly, the abomination of desolation is not a concept. It's not a type. It is an individual. It's a person. In fact, in Mark chapter 13, as Mark gives his accounting of Christ's eschatological discourse here, which is almost word for word, there's a tiny variation in some of the wording, some of the things, he actually uses the personal pronoun he in reference to the abomination of desolation. The most ultimate fulfillment of what Daniel the prophet wrote of is still yet to come. The whole time in human history will be marked by tremendous fear. Paul alluded to the fear that would surround the coming of the Antichrist. He wrote, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is received, and the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The unsaved, the unredeemed will be here to experience all of God's wrath poured out upon this world. It will be tribulation far greater than has ever been known before. All of the horrible terrors previously known to the world will seem by comparison to the tribulation period very small. Prison camps, evil dictators, murders, killings, warfare, all of that will seem small compared to what is predicted here. The second thing we see in this passage is the sign of the great deception. The sign of the great deception in verses 23 through 26. Sin and confusion always seem to walk hand in hand. Those with sinful intent have often taken advantage of the confusion of others. And that's true. I mean, it's true... Um, you know, we look around today and we think, who, do I, who can I trust? Who can I believe? I've been fooled so many times. I've been deceived by so many. Who do you give your money to? Who can you count on uh, in that uh, regard, in that area? Which advertising is true and which is not? Who is being dishonest and who is being truthful? Even among Christians, there are all sorts of claims and promises Things that we've learned uh, that aren't necessarily guaranteed. Even things that are guaranteed in this world turn out sometimes to not really be what they were billed as. What we have seen and what we are seeing are merely precursors to even more deception and more sleight of hand. Satan is sort of like a magician. A magician just makes things appear to happen. A magician doesn't have magical powers, really. A magician is someone who just simply makes things appear to be something other than what they really are. And that's kind of what Satan does. It's quite probable that many will even mistake the Antichrist for the Christ. If you don't have a solid biblical foundation and knowledge of, of the one true and living God and His Son Jesus Christ... And what the Bible then furthermore says about Antichrist, 
You might be fooled into thinking, and many, I believe, will be fooled into thinking, literally, that the Antichrist is the Christ. Miracles by themselves don't prove anything. We're told that Satan's going to come with all sorts of lying and false wonders and false signs and all of this. It's quite probable that many will, will, will believe these things. In fact, we're told that they will. There will certainly be, as verse 24 says, false Christ, false prophets, false everything arising and even able to perform wonders and signs. And they'll be clever in how they do things. And to the point that it says, so that they even might fool the elect of God, the saved of God. They're going to be, indeed, deceptive. Does Satan have that kind of power? Or is Satan powerless? Well, we see displays of Satan's power several places in the Scripture, and it's always used in a deceiving way. Remember when Moses stood in Pharaoh's court, God had given him certain signs that he was to take into Pharaoh, things like uh, throwing his staff down on the ground and it becoming a serpent. And what does it say there? It says the magicians in Pharaoh's court came and they were able to duplicate many of the miraculous signs that Moses did. Who empowered that? Well, it certainly wasn't God. Satan has power. And we need to not sit around and fear the power that he has because he can't do anything to us that God doesn't, wouldn't allow. But nevertheless, Satan does have power. He certainly has power to deceive. We know that. But he has power even to do miraculous signs. And one day, his man, the Antichrist, is going to be able to do some things that people haven't seen before. And they're going to ooh and they're going to ah over this man's display of power. And then what are some going to assume when they see someone with supposedly supernatural power? Look, that must be the Christ. They'll have just a little bit of knowledge in the back of their mind. Maybe they've learned it from grandma. Maybe they went to VBS. Maybe they went to Sunday school. Maybe they had a Christian co-worker that used to talk about God. And there'll be just enough in the back of their mind that they might associate the power that's on display with the things that they've heard. And many will believe. One of the specific deceptions apparently be that it will be claimed that Christ has returned to the desert, a big open space, or to an inner room, a small confined space. But he warns here, do not believe it. It's deception. People mistakenly think that Satan is always visibly bad. He always looks bad. He always acts bad. You can quickly and easily identify him because he's, all, he's bad. That's all he is. But what does the Bible say? Scripture teaches that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. And then it goes on after that. And it says his ministers also, in verse 15, transform themselves into ministers or angels of light as well. Many who do not know Scripture will easily fall for the Antichrist persona of peace. They will gladly welcome from him, welcome from him 
what they have always longed for. However, it will be nothing more than a trick. It's Satan in a costume or Satan in disguise. Think about the world today. Think about the climate, the political climate that we're in. Is the political climate right for these kind of things? It's rapidly becoming that way. Now, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me, in fact, I'm more and more convinced of this every day, that the time of this world is drawing to a close. But I can't tell you that I know that. Do I believe that? Yes. Do I absolutely know that? No, I don't. But think about just the political climate that we live in today. How many people are totally ready to believe false promises and false claims of peace? Do you see how ready this world is for that? I mean, you look at the Middle East and you see what a volatile place that is. And it's almost as though that you think at any moment, even right now in this world, someone could step out of the shadows and they could promise in a convincing way peace and everyone would ooh and ah and say how wonderful it is. We've been looking for this right here, right now, today. And I suspect that in the days and perhaps years to follow, it will become increasingly so. In other words, this world is going to be like ripe fruit, ready to be plucked, when you compare that with its readiness to be deceived. It's already pretty ready, and it perhaps will become more so. When you think about the deceptions of the Antichrist, consider also peace treaties. Even in the Arab world, what do peace treaties mean? You know, this is going to play heavily into end-time events, but what do peace treaties mean in the Arab world? Well, the truth of the matter is, and this has driven American presidents and other world leaders absolutely crazy over time. You can sign a piece of paper all day long, but if Allah says to go and kill this Christian or kill this Jew, Allah is more important than the piece of paper. And we've seen it time and time again. It will be a trick to find those who are in hiding. When Christ really returns, it will be a spectacular event that all will see. And this mystified many generations down through time. They couldn't imagine how could one event be seen simultaneously by all around the world. And then what? Television came along. Then the Internet came along. And all of those things that seemed so hard to wrestle with and figure out suddenly didn't seem so far-fetched. How is it going to look? I have, I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what that's going to look like. It just tells us that He will be seen by all around the world. And finally, in verses 27 and 28, there is great hope, a surety of great hope. As sure as lightning flashes brilliantly across the sky from the east to the west, so will be the visible time return of Christ. The second coming will be at the end of the tribulation period, and it will be the most glorious event ever witnessed by mankind. In verse 28, there's a graphic depiction there of the carnage that will be in the world at the time of Christ's coming. This verse basically is saying the old world, the old earth, this old system that is this world is done. It's over and done. Completed. The eagles are circling, in effect, 
like they do when something is dead. This world, its system, all that is about it is dead at this point. It's over and done with. The eagles are circling. The days that we are living in, my friends, are scary to be lived without Christ. This world is drawing to a rapid conclusion. Whether that means that Christ is coming back this next week or whether it's 20 years from now, it's still growing to a rapid close. Are you ready for it to all be over? Are you ready for time to end? Have you made peace with God in your heart and received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before you this morning, Father, we're so humbled by reading these things about the great tribulation and the rise of Antichrist. And Father, it just convinces us all the more of our need to look to you as our source of strength and look to you for guidance in a world that is often confusing. We read the Scripture and then we look at the world and we see that um, on one hand, uh, everything looks chaotic, but on the other hand, We look deeply at your scriptures and we see that you predicted all these things long ago. And we're confirmed in our faith by seeing how that you not only knew all these things, you're over all these things. You superintend all these things. We pray this morning if there's anyone here who's not ready for your return, not ready for the events of the end times, that they would get ready. That they would come today, receive you into their heart as their personal Lord and Savior. Maybe there are other needs here, Father, for church membership, recommitment of church membership, acknowledgement and that you're calling someone to do something in particular. Maybe that they need to share with the church and have the church pray for them in that. There may be other needs that you've laid upon people's hearts. And I do know, Father, as I preach these words this morning, and as we read these words, every single person here has lost family members and lost friends and lost neighbors that if the world were to end today, they would be facing the horrors of the tribulation. They would be facing the horrors, perhaps, of an eternity spent apart from you. I pray this morning that you would touch hearts and that you would have your way with us in this time of invitation. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.